So the reading this morning is from um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And the heading in my Bible is Unity and Maturity in the Body of Christ. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I don't know if Dave was glancing at the notes I've got written down here, because when he introduced it, he kind of stole a lot of my intro. So apologies if you've uh, just heard this five minutes ago. So in my um, study Bible, it says Paul wrote to the Ephesians to expand their horizons so that they might better understand God's eternal plan and come to appreciate the high goals he has for the church. And as has been said, the letter of Ephesians splits into two parts with our passage today being the start of that second, second half. Up to now, Paul has been teaching what has historically occurred uh, by God's will and through his son, and what it meant for the Ephesians and what it means for us. And it's chapters one to three is absolutely fantastic reading. So I do have another glance, uh, or an actual proper read, I'd be better than a glance. And now, as is standard operating procedure for God, our job is to respond to what God has already done. His actions always precede ours. And I hope you've heard that many times and that it's sunk in. Um, anything we do, any behaviours we strive for, is the result of God loving us first. We don't act in order to get that love. Uh, we already have it. And the case that um, Paul starts to make because of that goes something like this. It should be on the screen. We Christians, by the work of Christ, are called into unity with each other. 
Unity where each member never ceases making every possible effort to maintain unity. Each individual does this by using their God-given spiritual gifts to serve one another. And as this happens, the outcome is we all grow in maturity and we experience Christ all the more. So as we look through this passage, we're going to um, think about those three headings, which is unity, gifts and maturity. So let's start with unity. Chapter four says, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul has explained we've been chosen for adoption. Uh, to be heirs in the eventual bringing together of all things in heaven and earth. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of this inheritance. And the power that raised Christ back to life is also in us. We were dead and now we are alive, no longer separated from God or separated from each other, but brought near and joined together by the Spirit. We are God's handiwork. If you're a Christian here this morning, it is because Christ called you to follow him. And part and parcel of that call, as Paul is going to great lengths to explain, is being joined together with other believers through the spirit. Fellow citizens with God's people, with Christ as a cornerstone, to use chapter two language. We don't create this unity. God has done that. But we are meant to maintain it. And Paul starts straight on the uh, practical advice. In verse two, he says, be gentle, humble, patient and forbearing in love. I think Paul is forewarning us to be somewhat expectant of uh, immaturity in others. We should bear with we, uh, each other's weaknesses, never ceasing to love them in spite of their displeasing faults. Um, be willing to suffer for a long time with others. At a wedding, you see relatives or distant relatives from the two families meet for the first time. And imagine prior to you just being introduced to someone, you were told, listen, when you meet this person, I want you to be gentle, humble, patient and bear with them in love. You think, who is this nightmare family member that you're about to let loose on me? Paul urges us to love and he wants us to continue to suffer with someone, even when they are a discouragement. Someone who is perhaps abrasive or uh, seems to just take and, and not give anything back. Or perhaps someone who's really hurt us um, and they somehow seem oblivious to it. Now, all of that sounds a bit bleak. Um, we're normally really nice to each other, I thought. Um, but Paul must sense the danger uh, with getting all these different types of people together. Because why else would we need patience and love? But you only have to look into your own family to quickly see the merit of such advice. And actually, a church that properly models love and unity, that really is special. It shows the presence of God, perhaps more than anything else. If you were to look at, into John 17, there's a wonderful insight in there of Jesus praying to God the Father for our sake. In that prayer, I counted, he specifically mentions unity at least nine times. I'll just read you one part from it. He says, whilst praying to God the Father, Jesus says that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I in you. Then the world will know that you sent me. Our unity is to be a beacon to the watching world. 
so that they will know the love of God. When I was in the youth work at Chessington, um, the, the 12 or 13 year old me had a bit of a crush on someone, but alas, some, someone else uh, asked her out before I did and she agreed. And of course, I decided I didn't like that guy anymore. <laughs> Long after these uh, teenage feelings of romance had faded, um, for, for everyone involved, the dislike I had for that guy um, remained and it grew and I kind of indulged it. Um, he'd never have known it because obviously we're really nice to each other, but internally I was judging him and secretly taking pleasure at any little misfortune of his that I saw. <laughs> now, to my embarrassment, this lasted at least for at least a decade. I was well into my 20s before this, my spirit was convicted and I repented. I wish I could say I forgave him, but it turns out he never done anything wrong. And I'm remorseful when I think back on this, thinking about how many times I took communion, how many times I thank God for what he's done in my life, whilst harbouring all this ill will to a, a member of my church family. And I only tell you about that to basically call out any ill will that might be present amongst us today. If we're to take this passage seriously, and if we take the prayers of Jesus seriously, there is no place for that. You might think that's fine for me to say because mine's some stupid teenage story. And you, on the other hand, might have actually been hurt and there was real wrongdoing against you. The thing is, I'm not sure that that really changes anything because there's no clause in the passage that says, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain unity, brackets, unless you've been wronged. We're to harbour no grudges, be it with or without merit, because Christ was forbearing with us. Now, as well, this letter wasn't just written to me. Um, it was to be patient with everybody else. It was written to everyone else to be patient with me. This means to someone out there, I am the person that they are having to be patient and forbearing with. I am the person that someone else has to be gentle and humble with. My conduct and my behaviour means Paul must plead with you, someone in this very room maybe, to be patient with me. It's food for thought how easy it must be to discourage others and hurt others with our words and with our behaviour. And Paul urges us to live a life worthy of the calling. Other translations say, I beg you, I ask you from my heart, or my personal favourite, I beseech you. It's clearly important. It's obviously important. It is a way for God to display his power. He has united us, and we must not stop in our efforts to maintain that unity. So how do we do it? Well, we've been given gifts. In one sense, Christ has taken care of the how. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What this is saying is we all have gifts. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, and he goes on to name some in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's not an exhaustive list. Other gifts appear elsewhere in the New Testament. But one thing that all the gifts that are described have is an overarching theme of service. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul states, gifts are to be used for the common good. In Romans 12, like in this passage, gifts are intertwined in a paragraph about serving one another and that, about how we are all part of the body of Christ. In 1 Peter 4, Peter is explicit, saying, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Whatever our gifts are, they've been given to us so that we use them to serve others. Verse 12 says, when we hear God's word taught, it prepares us for our own ministry and service. And I thought that sounds like a throwback to chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, we're all God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. As pastors and teachers use their gifts to proclaim God's word, us listening are equipped to then use our gifts in our particular ministry. And as all this activity goes on, in verse, as it says in verse 12, it builds up the body of Christ. I think that it is impossible to read this passage to understand what Paul is saying and think that we don't have a role to play in the church, that we can just turn up and be passengers. Christ has already, already reconciled Jew and Gentile in chapter 2, tearing down the walls of hostility. Christ brings hugely different cultures together in him and then proceeds to give gifts to every member as he sees fit. So the church by nature will be filled with all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, with all sorts of gifts. And it completely points to God that each one of us randomers and strangers here um, has been given a gift that will in some way build up someone else in that congregation. God is the great orchestrator of it all. And he has brought you today to this particular location, this particular church. And it's completely reasonable to think that your particular gifts that Christ has given you are the perfect match for someone's need, someone here. Um, when Johnny was here, uh, he was running the music group and I did what I considered a very, very small favor for him, which was to do the rotor. It was nothing major and I honestly gave it no second thought. He later told me that he'd really, really appreciated it, much more than I could have anticipated. And in some way, a small burden was lifted from him. Now, for all I know, uh, one evening when he was otherwise going to be doing the rota, he instead caught up with an old friend or prayed for someone or served in some other ministry that built someone up. For all I know, he had some more time to practice his guitar for the upcoming service, which meant for better music, which better facilitated somebody's praise. And then perhaps that person was so uplifted through the singing, they were especially motivated to listen carefully to the preaching, which then equipped them to go on and do their own ministry. Sounds a bit pie in the sky, do you think? Well, I honestly don't. I don't think so. In verse 16, Paul describes us as a body, each part joined together by every supporting ligament, growing and building itself up in love. The body is such a great analogy for this. Um, when you see someone throwing a discus, they throw it with their arm, but also with their whole body. The little toe and the ear help them keep their balance as they spin around. And then the shoulders and the back and the chest and the hips and the legs all work together to launch the discus. 
their eyes identify where they are on the spin so they can work out the ideal moment for the fingers to release the nose and the mouth and the uh, breathing the air that, that gives oxygen to the lungs to give to the heart to pump around the, the body to the muscles if that's not right go check with Michael <laughs> after <laughs> if you are a Christian you are part of the body of Christ you have a role to play and you've been given a gift in order to do it and unlike a machine or an engine when one cog breaks basically the whole thing's broken when the body is hurting the rest of the body jumps in to support it if you've ever um, sprained your ankle you kind of walk around with a limp and your arms are out like this because the foot can't take the weight anymore so the rest of the body uh, jumps in and supports it until it heals verse 11 Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be built up. We're called to maintain unity by using the gifts we have been given to serve one another and build each other up. And then Paul continues verse 13 until we reach the unity in the faith and become mature. So the last thing to talk about then is maturity or immaturity. I have to say that this topic has really hit me quite hard as I've thought about it. So I'm speaking to you not as someone who's got it all together, not by any means at all. Three times Paul makes this point about maturity. Verse 13, until we reach unity and become mature. Verse 14, in the negative, we will no longer be infants. And in verse 15, we will grow and become in every respect the mature body of Christ. Paul has already reminded us back in chapter 2 how we were dead. But now, through Christ, we are born again. And when you're born, the starting place is an infant. FYI, if you also look at those verses, Paul says, we will, we all, we will. He, he includes himself in this. So if he still has room to mature... Certainly we do. The looming question then is, how mature am I? Verse 14 says, we will no longer be infants. So how does an infant act? Well, they're pretty needy. They've got no issue demanding uh, what they want, when they want it. And they can't even conceive to think about others and other people's needs. Infants are all about what they can get. They take and hardly give anything back. Um, parents go giddy when a baby smiles or looks at them because it's only going to last for a couple of seconds. Their attention can be hard to get. You have to make a big uh, song and dance. And only last week, I was being so flamboyant in talking to a baby, Dave thought I was trying to get his attention from the back of the hall. <laughs> and no sooner than you have the attention, it's gone to something else. Now, here's a sentence I never thought I'd find myself saying, but I'm not here to have a dig at babies. But I am going to have a dig at myself. 17 years or so, I've been a Christian. Yet so often, I know that I act like a spiritual infant. How often I think of myself over others. I can think of one recent, recent example, which is to do with breakout rooms. Sometimes I would leave straight after the service. I've just been telling you all how Christ gives us gifts um, so that we can serve others and build each other up. You are all members of my 
church family. And for all I know, someone may have needed me some or just needed someone to talk to someone to take an interest in or uh, to listen and to encourage or um, to build you up. And especially, I think, in the lockdown with all the isolation that a lot of people have been feeling. But on some occasions, I've been too self-orientated to be bothered to give 15 minutes of my morning for a breakout room. Now, breakout room is a silly example, and anyone tuning in on Zoom, no pressure for later. <laughs> You may have legit reasons to leave, as sometimes I would, but there were definitely other times when the reason was that I'm an infant and I was just thinking to myself and certainly not living a life making every effort. What about um, attention span? You give a kid one thing, they love it, got to have it, five seconds later they want something else. How many times have I been convicted in a sermon or super challenge in a prayer meeting or a life group, but then what? It just fizzles into nothing. How many times have I said, I'm going to strive to change that bad habit or get real on subject X, Y, and Z, but I end up nowhere? No growth, uh, no growth and no change in my lifestyle equals spiritual immaturity. It goes on, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. I wondered if this was alluding to suffering, to the emotional highs and lows of our lives. Do you have the maturity to deal with trouble? When the storm comes, am I tossed back and forth, or am I content with Christ and patient and steadfast and striving to, still striving to serve others? Blown here and there by every wind of teaching, I remember having a conversation about how do you know good preaching when you hear it? And I said something like, you just know it when you hear it. But what kind of answer is that? It's like an infant taking whatever food comes their way. If you've ever given a baby a lemon, they try and eat it and then they squirm about like crazy. <laughs> so I've been told. <laughs> Do we take whatever teaching is given, be it from books or the pulpit or public opinion, or are we able to scrutinise it all against the Bible and marry it up with our own pursuit of study? Instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Christ. Speaking the truth in love can be a little bit of a catchphrase. Uh, I was part of a young lads group and we used to meet up and read the Bible and share and pray. And when someone was doing something wrong, we'd confront each other, often in a cold and harsh way. And uh, you could cover yourself by just saying, oh, I'm speaking the truth in love, brother. So what is the balance? I think the truth part is the easier part to get right. You often know what you should tell the person, but it's the in love part that we get wrong. Maybe you're a person that avoids telling the truth. You just don't want the conflict. Uh, you don't want to hurt them. You want everything to be kind of happy. Plus, there's always a risk that they might not take it well, and then the relationship would be strained. So in order to preserve that, to, to keep a happy medium or status quo, you just keep quiet. 
but that just gets us right back to spiritual immaturity, to the infant thinking of how they're affected and not about the other. If the choice is between the damage someone might be doing to themselves, plus us wanting, or versus us wanting the pleasure of a relationship, what choice do we make, the inward or the outward thinking? Alternatively, you might be the more direct, speak your mind type, just say what I think. I'm an advocate of the truth. And uh, we all get a bit of a kick from winning an argument, but is being right more important than the outcome of the confrontation? Uh, do we have pride in our moral superiority in that moment? And does that overtake the needs of the other person? Is how best to affect change in their life a part of that thought process at all? Or are you just distracted with the argument? Both are concerned with thyself above the other, which means it can't be in love. My brother once told me that it was obvious to him that I didn't read the Bible enough. And it was truth. And I wanted to end the combo and get out of there, change that subject as soon as I could. But it was a delivery of truth from someone that I know loves me and someone who had my welfare at heart. Now, I know some of you know Josh, but there was a real gentleness and humility to his confrontation. It was genuine love and concern. And speaking the truth in love, it can be done. So let me ask you a direct question. Are you growing as a Christian? If you were to go back one year, are you more spiritually mature today than you was a year ago? Are you more self-controlled or more disciplined, more joyful and content, more prayerful, more patient, more filled with kindness and generosity? Do those things come easier to you? Are you more loving and more concerned with others, less concerned with ourselves? Are we more servant-hearted? You could always ask someone you know what they think. Do they think you're growing? So what do we do if the answer is no? What if we're not growing up? Well, we do what Paul has been talking about, using our gifts, our God-given gifts, to serve the church family. It is by this method that we grow. There's nothing in this passage that indicates it's a case of privately trying harder. In fact, it's, that's opposite to what Paul begs us to do. We're called into unity and serving each other. Each of us has a ministry. Um, and in building others up, we, be we become more mature and further grasp the fullness of Christ. My soul was taking a right beating in preparing all of this stuff that I've talked about today. So I'd like to close with an ultimate truth in love. The hardest and most cutting truth any of us could ever hear is the truth of the cross. The truth of the cross is that we are wretched, sinful, dead, with no hope of earning our way to God. No hope of pleasing him. We're actively rebels against God with a huge debt that we've racked up that is well beyond our means to pay. And nothing short of the death of Christ can reconcile us. There is no truth that is harder to stomach than that, surely. But it is a truth that is actually absolutely rich in love. Jesus did die for you. 
he did pay for you. He has reconciled you and God is bringing all things together under Christ. We've been given all of that and then some more gifts to help us build each other up and fully grasp the wonders of our adoption and the wonders of our relationship with Christ and the wonders of being part of his family. We are united to him and we are on a path to attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And praise be to God for that.